1: One minute past nine, you are tuned to 102.7 3RRR. Uh, this is this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm
2: John Ford. How are you, John? Uh, apart from a little cold, I'm doing okay.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Good to hear. And I
2: see um, Bron still has black fingernails on, um, <laughs> there, everyone. I think this is going to be a bit of a cure-filled
1: show. <laughs> we have a bit of a cure-fest happening today, <laughs> for those of you who know me and um, for those who I'm sort of connected to via social media, Yes.
2: Yes. Big fan, Bron. I yes. am,
1: and it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful show on Thursday night. Yep. Anyway, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Thank you, Melissa, for things to do today live. live
3: that was a studio. bit exciting.
1: Yeah, it was. We should do that more often. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> maybe she'll come in and do it on marinara one day. No, we don't want to kind of stomp on Tim's turf. Oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> we have a massive show today. Yeah,
2: heaps of guests.
1: We do. So um, very shortly we're going to be crossing uh, to speak with Sean Wilmore, who is the president of the International Rangers Federation. It is World Rangers Day today. So uh, we're going to speak with Sean in just a moment. and. Um, also going to be talking to him about a big fundraiser for uh, World Rangers Day or for, for um, the Thin Green Line Foundation, uh, of which he's also president, um, which is taking place next Sunday. So a quick quick cross to Sean. We're going to talk to him more about that on next week's program, but just to get it in your diaries, because it's going to be an absolute cracker. Then we're going to have in studio Richard Rayner. <sighs> going to get that one right. Thank you, Richard. Um, he's going to be coming in and speaking to us about sea turtles in Costa Rica and Mm. a really interesting situation over there um, to do with uh, a terrible uh, previous um, situation where there was big poaching, big problems... And uh, and that situation has been turned around. Great. I'm going to use another word than situation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm concentrating on too much at once. Um, then we're going to be crossing down to Blairgowrie. And last week uh, on our program, you might have uh, heard AJ from Dive to You talking to us about this amazing. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to say situation. It's not situation. Um, they're transplanting a whole lot of sponges. Uh, ascidians, uh, mm-hmm. other what we call sessile marine invertebrates so invertebrates that are kind of stuck onto something and in this case it's the Blair Garry Pier mm-hmm. uh, and transplanting them onto their new home. Mm. It's the it's a very, very huge exercise that they're undertaking and we're going to cross to Blair to find out how that's going that's actually kicking off this weekend. Yep. You might have seen some footage uh, on some of the mainstream news reports last night. Then, John.
2: Then we've got Alva uh, Edwards coming in from the um, Good Fish Bad Fish website and he'll be talking about about um, social licence of fisheries and what it means to have social acceptance um, of a fishery and what that actually means for um, their existence, their continuation and so on. So that would be quite interesting, given particularly given a few um, recent um, sort of um, examples that we've, we've had around that. Mm. That's
1: right. Uh, and then to close the show, Alicia Belgrove's coming in. Um, she is a lecturer and a researcher down at Deakin University's Warrnambool campus. Uh, she's coming in to talk to us about a couple of things. She's just had a bunch of her students go with her over to Japan, where she did some post-doc work uh, a long time ago. Uh, and talking about Uh, priority marine research in Japan, but particularly in areas that were affected by the tsunami from a few years ago. Uh, So really interesting what's going on there. She's also going to be talking to us about what's happening at Deakin University in Warrnambool. We had a phone call earlier this year alerting us to the fact that there were some big changes underway. Uh, So we're now going to be speaking with uh, Alicia about that, about those changes and uh, what they might mean heading into the future. Yep. All right.
2: Right, well, well the super weather. Super quick
1: weather report yeah, and then absolutely. we're going to go to Sean well, The going to
2: be 17 degrees today. Fantastic. Nice. Yes, um, a little bit of sunshine and a little bit of cloud. Um, tomorrow's going to be top of 15, Tuesday 12, then Wednesday 13, Thursday 13, Friday 14. And during all those days, there's going to be a very high chance of rain. So, yes, lots of cloud and lots of rain and between 12 and 14 during the week. But so make the most of today's 17. Now, on the water, we have steady swells, an easing westerly winds so are producing good waves across the surf coast this morning. Water temperature is still around a chilly 13 degrees. So Phillip Island fun one, one metre waves. Mornington Peninsula, the open beaches are lumpy with one and a half metre surf. And at the surf coast, we have good surf around one metre at Bells Beach and Winky Pop the wind today being 20 to 25 knots northerly.
1: Nice. Thanks, John. No worries. Without further ado, we're now going to go to the phones and speak with Sean Wilmore, President of the International Rangers Federation, and uh, to wish him a very happy World Ranger Day. Good morning, Sean.
4: Good morning and happy World Ranger Day to you.
1: <laughs> Great to have you on the phone. We're going to have you in studio next week. Um, and uh, what's what's happening? World Ranger Day celebrations. Tell us what's going on.
4: Uh, It's really great. Um, There's there's a mixture of emotions, I suppose. It's um, it's great. So many rangers around the world and people around the world are holding up a sign that says, I stand with the world's rangers, protecting wildlife. So people can um, get on our website and Facebook and grab that sign and and just show the rangers you're standing with them. But it's kind of mixed with a few emotions because we also commemorate um, those that have lost their lives in the past 12 months. And I don't want to bring everyone down on Sunday morning, but there's 108 rangers uh, lost this last year that we know of. Um, and it's already gone up to 112 since last week we print, when we printed the list so we, yeah we respect them on those people and um but yeah then give our thoughts to the rangers still out there doing this really brave and good work
1: Um, It's been uh, a really humbling and uh, wonderful experience to be part of uh, some of the fundraising events that you've had over the years, Sean, and there's always been a moment during those particular events where it really is brought home about how uh, rangers around the world are losing their lives in the job of protecting uh, our wildlife, and that's what the Thin Green Line Foundation is all about, isn't it?
4: Yeah, so for those who have followed us for a bit, yeah, you'll know that we, we do support the widows of um, of rangers and the kids of rangers who have lost their lives, but we also are proactive as well and train and equip the rangers and, you know, really happy to say with people like R and yourself and others that get behind us, we just in the last 24 months we've been able to fund about $1.1 $1. $1 million worth of ranger projects direct to the ground. So, you know, it is, it is about getting the, the support out there and we're doing exciting stuff like an Indigenous Ranger Exchange Program with Australian rangers going over to Africa and hanging out with their counterpart there and doing some pretty hardcore anti-poaching work. Um, yeah, so it's about the family of rangers and about keeping that morale up in what is sometimes a very difficult and dangerous job, yeah.
1: Now, uh, tell us about what's happening next Sunday because and we'll have you in to talk to us more but uh, and our listeners more, but uh, for people who kind of need to get this in the diary, plan ahead, uh, what's happening on Sunday because it's going to be an absolute cracker event.
4: Yeah, so today's World Ranger Day, but we, we pulled together a, a comedy gig. Uh, so we've got Brian Nankervis, uh Dave O'Neill, John Fleming from Scared Wears Little Guys and uh, Mick Malloy are doing a comedy show for us at the Gasometer uh, next Sunday. And so, yeah, people can get online to Thin Green Line um, or the Gasso website and uh, grab themselves a ticket and all the funds. And Coopers Coup- have sponsored all the beer, so every beer Coopers you have goes to the Rangers. So Cooper's are green, of course. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's, um, it's going to be just a cracking comedy show with the band um, playing before and after. Um, yeah, next Sunday at the Gasso. So we'd love everyone to get online and, yeah, come and support us and let's have a full house for the Rangers.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And great venue to have it at the Gasso as well. Hey, uh, Sean, we're going to let you go. Um, one last quick question for you. And you mentioned that, uh, and I've seen this too, on... Um, on social media, you've had all, all sorts of people holding up the sign saying I stand with uh, World Rangers um, and Jane Goodall being one of them. If if our listeners want to get involved in that, what's the best thing that they can do? Is it to go to the Thin Green Line website?
4: Yeah, you can go to the Thing Green Line website. Um, you'll see the World Ranger Day pack there or just to the Facebook page and you can see the sign. You just scroll down and find the actual um, page. You can either print it up or just hold up the screen, um, you know, with I stand with Rangers and post it on your in your profile or just on the timeline today, just, just show the rangers or on Instagram or all those social media funky things that people do. Um, yeah, just show the rangers that you're with them and make some noise um, because it is a pretty full-on job for rangers out there around the world. And uh, yeah, the simple thing we can do is social media to just show them that we're with them. And then um, yeah, maybe later on you can get actively involved and come to a gig or do something else later.
1: Great. All right, thanks so much, Sean. And really looking forward to having you in studio next week and uh, happy and commemorative World Ranger Day to you.
4: Yeah, thanks, Bronnie. I might, might be having a green mohawk by the
1: end of the day for South Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing that on you next week. All right. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, thanks, me. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Sean Wilmore there. Uh, amazing. Here we are. Back on Radio Marinara.
2: Bronze in Blissland. I am. <laughs> that was a cure if you uh, <laughs> missed
1: was That was a crash from uh, Wild Mood Swings from back in 96. Good morning. Good morning, Ron. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. <laughs> Richard Rayner. Yes. <laughs> I, I nearly got there. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you. Yes. So we mentioned at the start of the program, you've come in today to talk to us about sea turtles in Costa Rica, which yes. is the coast of Richard. Technically, is it?
5: No, the Rich Coast.
1: Oh, the Rich Coast. Oh, I thought I had. Yes. I we yes. had a link there. Anyway. What well, we'll call the Coast of Richard today. Thank you. So you've been over there a few times, haven't you, for, for uh, doing yes, research?
5: I've been many, many times. I went for the first time actually exactly 20 years ago. Right. Um, and then most recently at the end of last year. Um, and all I probably lived in country for a year and a half, maybe even two years actually with the with the, the long field trips I was making um, sort of the latter part of each year for, for quite a long time. Um, not as frequently since I've been permanently back in Australia, but uh, still try to get over there as much as I can.
1: And there has been a problem there with um, poaching of sea turtles.
5: Yes, and, and it's not unique to Costa Rica by any means, but uh, the, the story I wanted to tell you about was on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica, which was where I mainly worked, so that's the west coast, um, was a very large population of leatherback sea turtles and and certainly it was the largest population in the Pacific. So the leatherback sea turtles are the the very large ones, they're dark coloured and weighing sort of 350 or 400 kilos. We don't see them nest in Australia or at least there's been no recorded nesting for probably 20 years or more Um, and it was always a very, very low frequency. But we do see them in Australian waters because they come quite a long way south, they're very tolerant of cold water because of their size But there was a major nesting colony in Costa Rica on that Pacific coast and um, in an area that was fairly remote, but then in sort of the late 70s, that area became sort of populated at a small scale by people coming from the capital city, San Jose. And around that time then uh, some organised poaching started. So sea turtle eggs are poached around the world and sea turtle uh, adult turtles are poached that people eat um, and the eggs the same.
1: So the eggs poached for for consumption, or are they poached in order to hatch them and then sell them on?
5: No, they're generally purchased for consumption. Okay. So they're used in cooking, and depending on which species they are, others are also considered to be an aphrodisiac. So you have them in a shot glass with some salsa and, and skull it down. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I tried one once. So Did you? I'm never going to do it again. Imagine sort of a a raw chicken egg with just some strange spicy tomato sauce on it. It was... was, Nothing. I didn't feel any effect either, so I can't say it was really (laughs) worth the trouble. Right. But um, I thought I should know what it was that people were doing. Yeah. But um, they're poached then for use in cooking or for this sort of supposed medicinal qualities. And um, at the particular beach where these leatherbacks were nesting, which is a place called Playa Grande, there was a quite organised system of poaching... Um, and the beach, which was about three and a half kilometres long, was kind of divided up into sections, and there was a woman in control of of the place, um, Dona Esperanza was her name, and she would sort of settle disputes between the poachers, so she would sell them an allotment on the beach or rent them an allotment on the beach for the night and say, okay, this is your 100 metres or so. So you say poaching, um, was it actually
2: illegal to take them?
5: Yes, it was in that under Costa Rican law, all native wildlife is protected. Mm. Um, but it was one of those cases where probably most people didn't even know that there were these turtles there because there was no easy access to that part of the coastline.
1: and So it was a word of mouth thing that people
5: Yes, and used. especially during the rainy season, the roads easily got cut. So um, Dona Esperanza would, would sort of patrol the beach and settle border disputes as to whose turtle this was or, or, or at any given time.
1: And making a fair amount of money, as, well, as you're saying. Well,
5: I guess by local standards, yes, she was, and, mm. and by um, our standards, not very much at all. Right. But then that systema- uh, systematic poaching meant that almost every single egg laid on that beach for almost a decade was, was taken. Wow. And so you can imagine then that robs a population of any recruitment Um, So what occurred was that uh, this long-term poaching happened and then the population suddenly started to crash Mm. and went in sort of probably the mid-80s from a couple of thousand individual turtles nesting per year, rapidly declining so that within the next five years or so that was down to maybe 400.
1: And then flow-on effects to local ecology, presumably. Yes, and...
5: and, um, Because leatherbacks are important, Um, jellyvores they gelatinous prey. Then it's quite likely there were some shifts um, in the local ecology. But the thing, the story that I wanted to tell was about how that situation changed, Mm. at least from the perspective of the protection. And so uh, when I first went in 1996, I went to work with some colleagues based in the United States and they had worked closely with the Costa Rican government because they'd become aware of this beach in the late 80s and and saw the problem that was occurring and they worked with the Costa Rican government and at that stage Costa Rica was very progressive in Latin American terms regarding conservation and protection and actually enacted uh, many pieces of legislation to create protected areas and... Las Baulas National Park, which is this particular nesting beach, was one of them. Mm. And so the the Costa Rican word for leatherback turtle is baula. So this was the the leatherback's um, marine park. And so um, they protected the park, but the thing that was very sort of um, clever about what they did was that they then decided that the people who had been involved in poaching needed some alternative activity. And so they employed them uh, and trained them to be guides and therefore they had some economic incentive to continue um, protecting leatherbacks rather than taking the eggs. And, and I think that's a really important thing if you want successful conservation and protection that you need to have the people who were part of the problem and make them part of the solution, which in this case then was to give them the opportunity to charge tourists to come and see the turtles and therefore have an incentive to uh, prevent any sort of background poaching that might occur but also have some active involvement in the protection
1: such a wonderful story. And, and also from a practical point of view, these people will know that whole uh, in, area, their whole environment better than anyone else because they've relied on it for a living for so long.
5: Yes, and there was a lot of local knowledge about the turtles um, that they could then relate to tourists. The one obstacle we had to overcome was that many of these guides didn't speak English. And generally in Costa Rica, it's a requirement that to get it, sort of certification as a guide, you must be competent in English and, and these guides weren't. So actually in the year, the first years that I was going there, I spent quite a lot of time translating from Spanish to English for the tour guides and answering questions, uh, sorry, for the tour groups because the guides couldn't really communicate with mm. them very well. But it did mean that there was local knowledge, there was a reduction in poaching, there was an increase in protection and a much more um, happy circumstance for the turtles overall.
1: And where are things at today?
5: Well, unfortunately, it's not a happy ending type story. Right. In that, although poaching was dealt with almost entirely, there's very, very little occurring now. The problems for conservation at sea remain, which is to do with incidental take by fisheries. Right. And so, um, we did the calculations and the modelling and showed that possibly one in five turtles per year was dying. Uh, being in courts, caught by and nets, nets and long lines yep. and so on, and and when you have a a long-lived animal like turtles, they can't sustain that kind of adult mortality. So the population has declined over the years. It's still present, but it has declined. And and I guess the way I would look at it is that all that beach protection um, and the removal of poaching has certainly bought us time, um, time in which to reverse other problems and, and drive that population back upwards again.
1: Looking at it locally, do you think, uh, given the turnaround that happened sort of on the shore what hope do you think there might be to turn this around at sea? So you've gone from sort of having poachers to conservationists and and advocates. Is there any kind of hope to have that same story sort of play out at a local fisheries level?
4: I think you always
5: have to be hopeful. Um, The difficulty is so much of what goes on at sea is totally unmonitored and unknown. So um, what we really need to do is to give some sort of incentive to fishermen, local fishermen or commercial scale fishermen to take the extra time and trouble to look after turtles when they catch them because really they don't they don't want to kill them but it's often a question of expedience when you've got a large animal thrashing around that's got a $5 hook in its flipper mm-hmm. that um, in many cases it's faster and, and easier to cut the flipper off mm. than it is to try and retrieve the hook. Um, so to date most of the actions have been about enforcement and monitoring and so on um, and there are, have been a lot of, has been a lot of progress made with small groups to, um, to change their practices, to give them alternative ways or some additional resources. So there definitely is improvement occurring. Um, the question is whether we can do it quickly enough to save some of these populations.
1: Mm. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. Uh, looking forward to having you in again in the weeks ahead.
5: I'm happy to be here. It's
1: been a wonderful story. So, yeah, we'll catch up with you again shortly. Thanks, Brian. We've been speaking with Richard Rayner. Uh, what a wonderful story that is. And you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3 R. We're now crossing to Blair Gary to catch up with AJ from Dive to You. Uh, good morning, AJ.
0: Good
1: morning, guys. How are we? Good, thanks. How are you?
0: Yeah, very well, thank you. Much better weather today.
1: Yeah, than last week. So, um, fabulous footage we saw on um, some mainstream news reports last night about uh, the great sponge transplant. Uh, for listeners who didn't catch the show last week, what are you, in sort of 10 seconds, what are you, what are you undertaking?
0: Oh, uh, potentially the largest sponge relocation in the world. Just a small project. <laughs> looking at, <laughs> just looking at um, trying to uh, save this habitat, relocate 5,500 sponges from old wall section to new wall section.
1: And this is a 300-square-metre exercise, so it's going to take you um, about 10 weeks. And uh, today is day one. Day one, it's
0: fantastic. Yes, officially. The launch was yesterday, which we're happy to get some coverage. And uh, today we're, we're we're getting dirty. We're getting
1: onto it. And you've got some fabulous weather for it too. What's um what's taking place today for our listeners who want to get down there and help you? This is down at Blake Gary Pier. Yeah,
0: we're well, on the hard setup on the hard set at Blake Gary Pier. We've got our volunteers starting to uh, trickle in now. So we'll go through a training session in the morning just so that everyone's uh, on the same playing field. And then we're going to jump in and set up our spongy bungees, and then uh, go ahead with the relocation process.
3: Spongy
1: bungees, I love it. And so, um, what are you what are you hoping to get done by the end of today? How many sponges are you hoping to transplant?
0: Uh, at this stage, I think we're hoping to get a good 120 odd uh, relocated uh, this morning session. Um, it will also be a bit slow going just because everyone's new and everyone's uh, you know going through a training process. So we won't put the pressure on. We want to make it enjoyable and uh yeah so aiming for a good 120 maybe 150 sponges this morning
1: fantastic and a fair bit of excitement have you got a lot of volunteers down there
0: yes yeah, so well we had a good uh, probably 18 or more sign up yesterday and i think we've got a crew of about eight sitting down this morning so very exciting
1: brilliant so if our listeners we're going to keep in touch with you over the weeks ahead to see how things are traveling if our listeners want to get down there today can they just rock up how long are you going to be down there for
0: uh, well, we she'll be down here up until probably early afternoon at least. So if there's any listeners out there that want to come down and say hi and, uh, and eyeball it for themselves, uh, there's no no worries there. Uh, if they can't make it today, they can head to the Facebook page and uh, they'll be kept up to date there, Operation Sponge, and at the same time they can see the events listed there so they can uh, volunteer as, they, uh, as their hearts desire.
1: Brilliant. We've already put a link to that on our Facebook page, but we'll keep refreshing that in the weeks ahead. Hey, AJ, thanks so much for joining us and good luck today. And um, we will come down. I'll come down. I'll bring the squids down and, and see how it's all taking place because you'll be there for a few weeks ahead. So good luck and we'll catch up with you next week.
0: Fantastic. Look forward to it. Speak to you then, guys.
1: Okay. Thanks, AJ. See ya. Bye. Bye. for now. Yeah, exciting, huh? It's very exciting. <laughs> I saw the footage last night on the news. It was really interesting that the coral glue that they're using to kind of stick these sponges on, it, it looks like a big blob of silicon, basically, yeah. but it's a, it's like a bio glue that they can use to put the sponges on. Yeah. They've done some trials. They've been successful so far, so yep. yeah, fingers crossed. Nice. Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. You are on Radio Marinara, and uh, we are now... Yeah, look, we're going
2: to change tone a little bit and start talking, um, I guess, sort of um, a bit more about fisheries and, mm. and social licence of fisheries and I guess why the public perception and I guess the acceptance of a fishery to operate, um, why that might be important. And we've got in the studio um, a friend of Marinara who's been in quite a few times, um, Oliver Edwards, who is a chef at the McConnell Group here in Melbourne. He's the co-founder of the Good Fish, Bad Fish um, website and spent last year actually exploring social license in Victorian fisheries. So, Oliver, welcome to Radio Maranara. Yeah, well, Thank you. It's welcome back.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you back. Excellent. So, Oliver, just tell us, what
2: is social licence, and particularly in a fisheries context, and, and why is it important?
6: So, social licence is essentially um, the acceptance, uh, social acceptance or approval of an industry or an operation um, as held by the community. And that could be a very local community, a national one, even an international community. And so why might that be important
2: for, say, fisheries?
6: Well, fisheries are a shared resource, and as such, we find, um, as with other natural resources, that the public acceptance of, of the industry is important to maintain um, political support for it uh, and, and other support.
2: So I guess in in the case of natural resources more generally, because, I mean, you don't see sort of social license for banks. I mean, like I'm not seeing... There's a lot of sort of, you know, disagreement about what banks are doing right now, but you don't see sort of a lot of political interference in those sort of things. Whereas in natural resources the uh, community perception can really strongly influence the political reality and actually what happens on the ground. So is there, is there a sort of a, a disconnect or I guess a difference there between how um, the social licence in sort of natural resources or shared resources, as you say, yeah, compared is. to in a more of sort of a business style environment? Well, I
6: suppose every industry and every operation would like social licence, but it's particularly important for um, those attempting to manage or extract natural resources because... They need uh, the political support, they need the licenses granted, they need uh, the quotas set in the case of a fishery, and those are things that can uh, be withdrawn.
2: Mm. So, I guess, give an example of where a fishery um, hasn't had social license or, or where it may have lost social license and, and how that may have actually affected um, its very existence, I guess.
6: Well, there's a couple of uh, really good, really local examples from the last couple of years. And it can look different. So um, a really obvious example probably to many of our listeners would be the the so-called super trawler. This is an example of uh, a recent fishery, a new fishery attempting to get started uh, in Australian waters that never gained social licence or social acceptability. And 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 still hasn't. And still hasn't. And as a result has run into a lot of trouble uh, regarding its licences uh, and its ability to undertake its operations,
2: because that's quite an interesting example. Because um, initially they were granted all their all their operational licences and everything by the by the sort of the sta- the, the federal bureaucracies, but that was overridden as a political decision, as a by parliamentarians and so on. So that's sort of the that chain of the community influencing the politics, which then influence seeing the um, the the bureaucracies.
1: And and to what degree did that have to do with? the uh, the operations of fisheries at a local level so th- this enormous big this uh, uh, approval was given for something sort of at a macro level but at a micro level when you look at the impact locally on fisheries
6: it was really interesting because the the super trawler and the debate around it and uh, the work of the various actors in that scenario the conservation groups the public outcry um, it all had an effect on other fisheries so what we found Sort of broadly, was that the conversation about the super trawler probably eroded social acceptability of other unrelated fisheries? Mm. By connection,
2: almost. And I guess initially, and you can expand that out even. So we're talking about sort of the super trawler on sort of like a, a, a moderate level, and we talk about you know smaller fisheries that might have been, as you say, their social license eroded by the super trawler. But also, a lot of the opinions around the super trawler initially were guided by or informed by what's happening on an international level, mm. and a lot—it's a lot of really bad international examples of how um, fisheries can be quite unsustainable, and whereas you know they don't deserve social license. And I think a lot of um, a, a lot of, of those sort of examples, because they're out there in sort of um, a lot of uh, you know documentaries and they get talked about a lot sort of guide people's um, decisions in terms of or, uh, um, preconceptions I guess around how fisheries work so <laughs> it works on sort of uh, certainly on, on different on different levels
6: yeah I think social license it's important to, to know that it's informed by by many different groups um, but it's also not necessarily a rational decision-making process there's a lot of emotion in public acceptance and so the social license of a fishery, is also very um, very prone to emotional responses and influenced by them.
2: So something more locally, say, the Port Phillip Bay example, I mean, that wasn't sort of a new fishery. It's been around for a very long time. But it's something that I guess it feels like it, it, it lost social licence over time or, you know, that's sort of the feeling it was. It was sort of the, there was very little understanding of the fishery or acceptance of the fishery um, yeah, more recently. Yeah,
6: I, th- I think it's an interesting example of perhaps social licence eroding very slowly over time to the point where maybe it didn't exist but it wasn't realised by the fishers themselves. Um, the environmental credentials of the Port Phillip Bay fishery are very well known amongst sort of the marine science community and the fishing industry itself but they weren't very well communicated to the public. So the public didn't understand that there was a uh, a pretty much well-regarded sustainable fishery in Port Phillip Bay. A lot of them didn't even realise there was a fishery in Port Phillip Bay, certainly didn't know what was coming out of that fishery or what might have been caught.
1: Is it partly that and also uh, a care factor that's going to be driven by sort of prioritising in people's minds how important this issue is? And so then what you end up with is an imbalance in the power of, of the push driving this campaign. Do you think it's partly that?
6: I think it is partly that. And when you say the power of, of the push there, it was very much a case of uh, some of the loudest voices got the most coverage. Um, perhaps the voices that started the arguments managed to control the arguments being put forward. Um, but I think in regards to social licence, it was the lack of uh, community knowledge and social acceptance to start with which put the uh, commercial fishers in Port Phillip Bay on the back foot. Mm. By the time this conversation about their fishery was taking place, it was probably too late for them to attempt to build community support.
2: So uh, what does social licence look like, as in how would a fishery gain it if it lost it or or needed to? I mean, uh, it sounds like... Understanding, education, those sort of things are, are are very important. Just knowledge that it even exists, and um, I guess, and for members of the community to actually value it. So, what examples do we have of you know good social license in fisheries?
6: Yeah, well, I think, like you said, I think for a community to value a fishery, first they need to know it's there, mm. and then they have to have some sort of connection to it. So, some of the best examples internationally and locally of strong social license to operate for fishers come from examples where the uh, consumers themselves, the public, the community, are in direct contact with the people producing the seafoods. Uh, Internationally, community-supported fisheries have had a lot of success.
2: So community-supported fisheries. So that is where um, I guess an individual can buy fish basically direct or get delivered almost fish box, like weekly fish boxes yeah, from, exactly. direct from a fisherman, right? Yeah, yeah, so
6: they follow the model of a community-supported agriculture venture and you can sign up to a season of fish. Um, there's a lot of information and education that goes hand-in-hand hand with that and what has been found internationally is that the fish is taking part enjoy really strong community support. Um, We don't have community-supported fisheries in Australia yet, at least, but we do have quite a lot of uh, fishers and seafood producers, including aquaculture, taking part in farmers markets and, and other direct sales Uh, environments.
1: Does it depend on where you are and I'm thinking of Bermagui specifically where (laughs) our listeners know I spend as much time as I can when I'm not in Melbourne Um, but there's a very big support there and that's probably more of an exception rather than the rule. You've got a whole town that was basically built to support fishery, which in time has dwindled, but there's still that support there. There's still a co-op. There's still a marina. They still sell fish uh, direct from the boats. They identify the boats that the fish have come from, so you can actually – you know which – which boat has brought that particular fish in?
2: Well, I think this really comes down to a, sort of this basic level of, of what a fishery is there for. And a fishery is there to catch fish, to provide food for people. And that's what it's all about, right? It's about, and I guess been in sort of social licence for farms is not something that's always questioned. Mm. But social licence for fisheries always is. And so we've lost sort of a connection between a fish providing food, which is protein, which, you know, which, is, which we need. Um, it, it's now become something that potentially we don't, Necessarily, it's not not, not necessity. Think, it's more of a choice.
1: I think the farm analogy is starting to. I, I agree with you, and I think the farm analogy is starting to get to the point where they're like the the um, the. Uh, de- um where am I going with this, dairy Mm -hmm. and and the egg industry in particular is starting to get a lot more in in the last couple of weeks has been a good example of that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a lot about methods rather than whether they should exist or not, Mm -hmm. and that's different. And I think in these small towns, the jobs matter as well. Like the jobs matter much more than, say, in Melbourne, where it's it's lost in the bigger job market. In all these examples, though, and whether it
6: is eggs or dairy or fisheries, I think what it comes down to is a need for transparency, traceability. The Bermagui example is fantastic because you can buy the fish at the co-op there, I'm very familiar with their their operation, you can buy the fish at the co-op, they label which boat caught it, and then you can walk down the pier and see that boat. Yeah, that's right. So there is a a high degree of traceability and transparency, and that's what fishers are finding they need, it's communication, it's education of the public, and it's... um, Transparency and traceability that creates trust,
1: and it, yeah, that's right. And it goes one. We're going to have to wrap this up, but it goes one step further than that too. It's that trust, but it's that personal connection. So it's just as you're saying, you can go and buy the the fish, and you can look out the window and you can see the boat that it's come from. You can even walk down to that boat and have a chat to the person or the the you know the operators who actually caught. And that just
2: fish. to finish, if those fishers know that their customers value sustainability, environmental sustainability, they're going to. Make sure that they hit that standard.
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly. we could talk for another ten minutes, but we're Alicia Belgrove is sitting in the in the green room, so I need to get her in. Thank you, Oliver. A
2: pleasure always.
6: We
1: are going to line up another time with you immediately after this program to come and continue this Sounds conversation. Because I feel do like that. we're just taking off. Triple R is where you are, and without further ado, welcome, Dr. Alicia Belgrove.
3: Thank you from
1: Deakin University's Warrnambool Campus.
3: Hello, Dr. Bron, Dr. John. <laughs> <laughs> Hello.
1: Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Now we've given it's you, um, for people who've maybe just tuned in, you, we, you've come here to talk about a couple of things. I'm not sure in which order we want to talk about them. So one being that you've just taken a group of students to Japan to uh, explore marine science and what that is uh, in Japan. Some of the, because you did a postdoc um, yes, in I Japan. Yes,
3: postdoc at the Shimoda Marine Research Centre in the idyllic town of uh, Shimoda on the Izu Peninsula. Shall we kick off with that? Sure. Let's it's a nice ahead. segue from your previous um, session, actually.
1: Excellent. So the purpose of this, you're taking a bunch of students over there?
3: Yeah, so I guess since my postdoc, we've been looking at ways over the last nearly 15 years that I've been at Deakin, Dan and Warrnambool to look at um, strengthening links between... Uh, University of Scuba in particular and also other universities that I have um, interactions with and creating opportunities for students to do study tours. And it, it culminated this year fantastically with a new Colombo Plan funded trip to Japan, which was a consortium bid that we Deakin University put in with the um, University of Tasmania. And so we got uh, $3,000 scholarships from the NCP funding, uh, which is Australian Government funding funding. Um, and for each student, so we could take 10 Deakin students and 10 UTAS students. Um, unfortunately, one of the UTAS students pulled out at the last minute, so we ended up with 19 students. And we did a effectively a 17-day trip around Japan and where I called on all my uh, connections to um, <laughs> create a, an amazing experience for the students. What
1: an opportunity. Imagine, uh, I'm just thinking about when I was going through. Is this
3: undergrad as postgraduate or postgraduate? Undergrads. second and third year students. So yeah. at Deakin, we, we, um, it was open to anyone, yeah. but we gave priority to marine biology, fisheries and aquaculture students from Warrnambool yep. and zoology students from Geelong. Yes. And in the end... They filled all the places and Utah students were primarily IMAS students. What's IMAS? Uh, Institute of Marine Antarctic Science. Okay. So studying um, the Marine Antarctic Science course down there.
1: So what did you do over there?
3: We first, we arrived like in the evening, found our way across Tokyo, nav- navigated to Tokyo Station with a crew for all people, which was terrifying. And um, we, the next, very next morning, we went to the Tokyo Fish Market. It's Tsukiji and... Um, then so that was amazing. Some of the a, f- a few of the students decided that they were going to get up early and go to the tune auction, but most of us, because <laughs> of the late hour that we got in and the ridiculous amount of travel we did, we just went a bit later. So that was a really interesting experience. I'd actually never been there myself. And then after that, we went down to Shimoda. To the Shimoda Marine Research Station, which is associated with the University of Scuba, and I'd organised basically a five-day intensive, a marine science intensive down there. So, we um, they've got an amazing research vessel. We took them out on the research vessel. We went snorkelling. We did um, a communicating science through art workshop, which was really interesting with some local artists. And we um, and then the students did their own research projects. I want to talk. I
1: want to make sure we've got time at the end to mm. talk about what's happening yeah. with Deakin Warrnambool, uh, but specifically to talk about what the the work that you did with the students uh, in the area impacted by the tsunami. Yeah.
3: So, so I was going to say, after Shimonu, we went up north and went to Sendai for a symposium, and then up to Minami Sunriku. So Minami Sunriku is the town that was all over the news in in the 2011 um, uh, tsunami. And uh, for me, it was terrifying because I'd worked there and I knew people there. And so it was very kind confronting. Of confronting. Mm. And I went, I had a trip planned to go back there in 2011, in August. So I made a point to go back up to, you know, see my friends that had survived. And mm. and the impact was just life changing. Mm. And so I, I've been, and then I went back uh, last year with my family. And so I, when I, it, the ncp funding was in the in the pipeline and so i thought we need to bring our students here you mm. know our, our our students need to understand what's happening here mm. and so in a logistical nightmare we managed to arrange an opportunity to take the students up there and it was really amazing the the first day we did a a tour we we heard from um when it, some of the survivors, and then we did a tour of the impact zone and By the afternoon, everyone was in tears, and I thought, "Oh my God, what have I done <laughs> but actually, talking about the social license it was a, the township has reinvented itself, and they 're the first city in the world to or the first place in the world to get um, aquaculture steward certification so ASC certification and forestry certification
1: because effectively what they've been created what what has been created is a blank canvas yeah. as as devastating yeah. and catastrophic as the tsunami was you have a blank canvas
3: yeah. and the community got together with their their you know fishermen aquaculture elders the young folk coming through that are wanting to get in and the the entire community was like just devastated the livelihoods of all the community were just destroyed completely so they had this opportunity and they've taken it. so it was actually amazingly inspiring
1: we're going to get you back on the program this has been the thing i've been saying all through the last <laughs> hour but to talk more specifically about this and some of the research and where that's going we've got about two and a half minutes left and i really want to talk about what's happening at deacon in Warrnambool. sure so to to set the scene, uh, in March we had a phone call from someone after the show saying, do you guys know what's going on at Deakin Uni in Warrnambool? Um, we don't know what's going on but we've heard all these rumours that the Warrnambool campus is closing down and that the marine science uh, program there, we, we don't know what's going to happen to that. So we've we've not kind of touched on that until now because we we kind of wanted to find out what was happening but you're able to give us a, a, a an update and a summary of what's going on.
3: Yeah, so we haven't known basically for the number of months what's been going to be happening and the... Um, and the long and the short of it is, uh, Deakin is staying at Warnable campus and marine biology is staying at Warnable campus. But we are also extending our operations to try and grow marine science at um, Marine and Aquaculture Science across Deakin. So for next year, we'll be offering marine biology at uh, Warn Ponds campus as well in Geelong, as well as the existing intake into Warnable. And so the v- Vice-Chancellor has given a very firm commitment that um, it will be offered at both Warrnambool and Geelong and students that enrol in w- and will, will certainly live out their degrees at Warrnambool campus.
2: Does that mean more travel for you? You've got to give lectures at both places?
3: We're not entirely sure what it means for us yet, but we're looking to increase staff too with and, and, and research capacity as well as yep. um, student numbers. Yep.
1: That's fantastic.
3: Yeah, it's really exciting times. Yeah. You know, and- we 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 basically the university has invested over 5 million dollars in marine science over the last number of you know probably over the last 5 years or so and so we've already grown dramatically with you know some fantastic new staff and postdocs coming in and and we're just looking to try and keep up that momentum do
1: you know what kind of time frame you're looking at in terms of kicking things off at Warn ponds
3: it'll start next, next year. year so right. 2007 Sorry, 2017 intake. Uh, it will be offered at, so it's in the VTAC guide. It's all systems go. Mm.
1: Fantastic. Wow. Cool. Thanks, Alicia. Yeah, nice. no That's really exciting. We're going to go into the green room shortly and line up a time for you to come back on. Sh- very soon to talk more about both these things and I want to talk more about um, undergrad marine science. Oh, Dr. Surf's just walked into the studio. As our outro is playing firstly I'm just going to thank our guests Richard Rayner who uh, was speaking to us about uh, Costa Rica sea turtles uh, and Oliver Edwards from um, we'll say Good Fish, Bad Fish. Yes. Yes and uh, Alicia thanks so much to you. Thank you John. Thank you Bron. Thank you Kent. He's been panelling for us today. Dr. Surf. Good Hi morning, Brian. This is like a special guest appearance. <laughs> it is right We're at
0: the in, end, In into interview a Pulitzer Prize winner.
1: We're very excited about that. We're going to go yeah. and do that uh, shortly. Yeah.
0: And how good's the surf been, Brian?
1: I don't know. It's Tuesday, you tell me. All time. Really? <laughs> yes. Anywhere in particular? <laughs> yeah. West Coast. I, I've got
0: pictures to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not telling you where. Anyway, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>